Before we pray, though, we have um, a friend that has come out of the mothballs that is here to be able to lead us in worship. Eric Stearns is going to be here and leading us with worship as Tom's taking some time off. So let's pray for our night. God, we thank you that, uh, that we are able to gather together as a family to be able to study your word. And I thank you for my brother Eric and, and being able to come and, and to join us in leading in worship. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fall fresh upon us even now that you would inspire our hearts, that you would bring us to that place of, of bowing our knee and our hearts before your throne room of grace. God, you're amazing. And you're kind. And you're loving. May we set aside the day and the week and see your face shine. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, you know what? If you want to stand, now's the time. Let's praise the Lord together. Praise is rising. Praise is rising. Eyes are turning to you.
mercy never fails me. Oh, all my days I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, I will sing of the goodness of God. Oh, my us more than we could ever understand love. Your goodness surpasses anything in this world. Our finite brains, Lord, we struggle to understand it. We just know that you love us 
And because you first loved us, we can love you. Lord, we are so grateful for your love, for the way you care for us. Father, for the way you sent Jesus. Be glorified tonight. Worship His 
forever you are to be glorified. This is not just words. This is not just us crying out. Lord, your word tells us and you have proven to us time and time and time again that you are to be glorified. That you will reign supreme forever and ever. Far longer and far greater than we can possibly imagine. Your glory will reign supreme. Your greatness will be known to the entire universe. And you will be the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to come to you tonight. Thank you for giving us this time. Lord, as we enter into a time of teaching and reflecting and learning, Lord, send your Holy Spirit to open our hearts. Help us to grow tonight, to become further conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, that, Lord, we might shed off the old Adam and become more like Christ. For that's our heart tonight, Lord, to glorify you by conforming to the image of Jesus. Be glorified in us tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. You know, it's a good thing when the brethren dwell together in unity and being able to worship God. And What a blessing it is to be able to do that. I can tell you this, when we were in Rome and we were in Paul's prison cell, we were worshiping the Lord and then we got kicked out. Seriously. <laughs> we were raising the roof and, and the gal, the caretaker, came out to the head of the steps and she said, you guys need to leave now. So we got, I can honestly say we got kicked out of prison, so that was good. We're going to be in John chapter 7 as we continue our journey through God's Word. If you would turn to there, we're going to, we're going to tackle this, this chapter. As, uh, John continues to give us the account of Jesus and the ministry that, that he was doing. And one of the, the difficulties that every person, every person that is of faith, wrestles with, is doubt. Doubt is a tool that Satan will use to cause you to stumble, cause you to fall, cause you to question God. Doubt is the, is the, is the antithesis of faith. Martin Luther said this, Faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. Think about that. It, it, it really is moving up, but when you doubt that it's there and, and Satan challenges your faith with doubt, he, he's going to cause you to stumble, to hesitate. Where does doubt begin? Well, it's anchored in the original sin. Remember in the garden, Satan came to Adam and Eve and they were discussing the fruit and and Eve said, well, we can't eat of the fruit of the tree because God said, the day that we eat it, we'll surely die. And he said, did God really say that? Did he really say? We get that little seed of doubt that's planted in there. If we think about the consequences of doubting Jesus, let your mind dwell on that for a minute. What happens if you doubt Jesus? If you doubt who Jesus is? The theology of the cross, the theology of Christ. What happens if doubt comes in 
and challenges you and says, well, is Jesus really the Son of God? Did Jesus really die on the cross? Did He really rise again? What happens? Your whole salvation falls into jeopardy within us. We live by faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. When we think about the problem with our world today, is that the world today brings a sense of skepticism that will infect us. And we are bombarded by skepticism every day, aren't we? Whether it's with the news, or whether it's our social world, our family, our friends, there are skeptics all around us. And I can tell you this, it's going to be harder and harder to be people of faith in a world that is dying. A world that is skeptical. And with this, the problem with the skeptic is, regardless of the information offered, the skeptic will never believe. It doesn't matter how much you give them, the skeptic, by nature, will not accept that information. Therefore, they won't believe because of that skepticism. We're entering into a section in John's account, John chapter 7 through 10, and it's called the festival cycle. And it's the cycle where Jesus is revealing himself in Jerusalem. Mind you, he's been up in Galilee, but he's coming down in Jerusalem. And he's going to reveal himself to the Jews in Judea through the festivals. It's an interesting study if you were ever to do it, because all of the festivals really point towards Jesus the Messiah. But he utilizes the festivals because it's the gathering. It's the most people that are gathered together in one place. And so within this, chapter 7 and 8 is really the, the tabernacle discourse where Jesus is revealing himself as the I am to the audience, to the people that are there. There is a great amount of, of people that are opposing him by this time. They are, they are against him. They've rallied the troops. The Jews are picking up steam. In fact, he will reveal himself as the I am, and in chapter 8, verse 59, they're going to pick up stones and try to kill him. It's risen to that level. You know, their, their sense of toleration of Jesus, the Messiah, right now, was okay. Up until now, he's, they've had enough of him. And so within this, there is some, some doubt, some skepticism, even amongst his own family. So as we walk through this chapter tonight, I want you to think about what happens when you doubt God. What happens when you doubt God's plan? Oh, and by the way, God does have a plan. What happens when you doubt the ministry of Jesus? What is the impact when we take a look at that? What happens when it comes to a place where you're going to have to take a side. Hmm. Are we going to have to do that in our world today? Yes. We are coming to a place where we are having to pick a side. And that is because the skeptics are getting louder trying to silence people of faith within that. So let's dive right in, verses 1 through 13, where we see in Galilee Jesus being doubted and questioned concerning his motives and his plan. It says, after these things, verse 1 of chapter 7, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Good idea. 
Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near, and therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you were doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. We'll pause right there for a minute. And one of the things that we see, first of all, is Jesus knows the enemies. In verse 1, it says, I'm staying up in Galilee. Why am I staying in Galilee? Because down in Judea, they're trying to kill me. Question, was Jesus afraid of death? No. Then why didn't he go down? If he knew he was going to die, why didn't he just go down and get it over with? Because it's about timing. God's sovereign plan. And even though Jesus knows the outcome... He also knows that there is a timetable by which he is marching. That God had foreordained. The after these things is John's way of moving this narrative forward. After the events of the loaves and the miracles and the teaching in Capernaum. He says after these things, these Jews in Judea wanted Jesus dead. But they wouldn't go up into the Galilee to try to attack him. Why? Because he was the most popular in Galilee. So they wanted to wait for him to come down into the area of Judea, which was their stronghold with Jerusalem. And so he was walking around and he's teaching his disciples, as was the case. And he knew of the antagonism. And then his brothers step into the scene. Verse 2, the brothers there are not the disciples. The brothers are his half-brothers, his biological brothers. And you say, well, they seem like they're really supportive of Jesus. Oh, no, they're not. Look at it carefully. It says this in verse 3, Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples may see your works which you were doing. For no one does these things in secret. But then in verse 5 it says, And they weren't believing him. Now in reading this I thought, Hmm, where have we seen brothers try to get rid of another brother that they didn't like? Joseph. Jesus' half-brothers were probably fed up with him and said, hey, just go ahead and go down to Judea so they'll kill you there. The sarcasm is thick because their idea is, well, if you're really who you say you are, big brother, then go down and show it because, after all, nobody wants to become popular. You know, the way to become popular is not to stay in the, in, in the shadows. Go ahead and go down there. And, and they're actually trying to get him to go down into the Galilee area. Now, the season that we know of is called Tishri. It's, it's later in September. It was the Feast of Booths that was going on. There were three mandatory feasts. There was the Passover feast with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Day of Atonement. Now, these were all feasts that were celebrated with a pilgrimage. So you would want to come down from the Galilee down and make a pilgrimage into Jerusalem to the temple area in order to be worshipped because there was only one temple. There were synagogues. Those were houses of teaching. But the temple was really the place of worship. So they would all go down into there. And so the Feast of Tabernacles is a memorial of the time when Israel had left Egypt and they were in the wilderness area. When they were in the wilderness area, how did they live? Well, they lived in tents or tabernacles or little places. And so it was a memorial of the time when God provided for them in this pilgrimage of the wilderness area. It was mandated by God. 
to be able to be in these feasts. They were to last seven days, according to Numbers chapter 29. And God said, I want you to do this. You know, God is so cool about how to help us remember. All the feasts were all designed for Israel to remember God's goodness and greatness and provision. It wasn't just for party's sake. The whole purpose of the feast was to remind them about the goodness and the greatness of God. And Jesus practiced the feast for the most part. But this one, he's going to hold off a bit. Now, within this, one of the interesting things is that during this feast, there would be this holy gathering together and then torches would be lit as the feast would go on. And, and the, the torches were lit to remind them of the pillar of fire that would lead them through the wilderness. It's a big deal. It's a big dramatic event that they would, that they would carry on. It's interesting because as this particular feast was going on in Jerusalem, we're going to read next week about Jesus making a statement. John chapter 8 where he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He says this in Jerusalem as the torches are being lit for the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody look at all the torches. He says, no, I'm the light, not these torches. I'm the light of the world. But it was the torches that were the light of Israel while they were wandering through the wilderness. And so Jesus makes this connection to them. And we'll do that. But the sarcastic brothers say, well, look it. Let's make your, your claim to be a public display. Now, one of the things that the brothers believed is that Jesus was delusional. We know this based on Mark 20, 3.21. It says, when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying he's lost his senses. His brothers thought he was nuts. He said, if you're really the Messiah, just go ahead and go down there and prove it. Psalm 69.8 says, I have become estranged from my brothers and alien to my mother's sons, which was a fulfillment of prophecy. Go down there and prove it. Now, one of the things that Jesus pushes back on is self-promotion. Did Jesus ever want to make a big deal about himself? No. He didn't come in. The only time he accepted corporate worship was when? Palm Sunday. It was the only time when he accepted that, that, that grandeur of worship. And that was the day of his triumphal entry on which he was going to die on the cross the week later. So within this, Jesus was not about making a big deal. But the brothers say, hey, if you want to be the big deal, go be the big deal. Go down there and display it. And one of the things that, that they didn't understand was this plan didn't make sense. No one promotes themselves in secret. Go down to your disciples down there. Do the miracles that you've been doing up here. Go prove it down there. Make a public display of the Messiahship. Prove it to everybody. One of the dangers in our life is we want to see before we believe. We want people to show us. If I see it, I'll believe it. But is that the essence of faith? No. It isn't. In, in fact, Jesus would rebuke the Jews in Matthew twelve thirty nine. He says, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to him but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the brothers didn't believe. 
They didn't believe. Jesus' own brothers. Have you ever been with family members and you try to share the gospel with them and they are just clueless? They just don't believe. And you go, man, I'm not a very good Christian. I'm not, I, I, what am I doing wrong? I should be able to, to witness to, to my brothers, my sister, my parents, my uncles, and they should be able to come to faith. What am I doing wrong? Well, you're in good company. Jesus had brothers that didn't believe. And it wouldn't be until after his death when James and, and John, they would come to faith, when they would come to this place of, of believing. It would be much later than that. We know that James would become the head of the church. I'm sorry, Jude. Not John, Jude, the brother. Because he said, the sign that's really going to prove it is the resurrection. Not the miracles. Don't ever chase miracles to remove doubt. Miracles will not be a substantial way to maintain faith. Why? Because with every miracle, you've got to do one better. Always got to do one better. What is the one thing that you can hang your hat on in faith? The resurrection of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb. The fact that he rose again within this. And so within this, the, the brothers didn't believe. And so they decided to go down and, and continue on. Jesus has this conversation with them, though, in verses 6 to 13. He says, so Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it, and its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I don't go up to this feast, because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee, but his brothers had gone up to the feast, and when he himself also went up, not publicly, but in secret. And so the Jews were seeking him at the feast, and were saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling amongst the crowd concerning him. And some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So what does Jesus say to the brothers who don't believe that say, go ahead and go up? Well, he said, look it, my plan's not your plan. In fact, I, I, I have my own plan. He said, my time is not yet here. But your time is always opportune. Now you might say, well, what is that? The timetable that Jesus has unto salvation is very, very strict. God has set the day. Why? Because guess what? All prophecy, including the day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, was foreordained. To the date. But he says, but your time is always. What does that mean? Jesus is implying that the opportunity to believe is every day. It's when the opportunity presents itself, which is always there. Jesus was, was in that place where he was following God's timetable. He says, my, my season is, is not yet present. In John 12, 23, Jesus will answer them talking about the cross. He says to them, the hour has come for the man to be glorified. What is he talking about? It wasn't then when he was in Galilee, but now when he's in Jerusalem and he says to his disciples, now my hour has come. But yours, you can be saved at any time. You can believe right here and right now in Galilee. What did they say? Go prove yourself in Judea. And Jesus says, you don't have to go to Judea to believe. You can believe right now in Galilee. You know, it's interesting. I've talked with people. And, you know, and I invite them to come to faith. 
to believe, and they say, you know, i got some things i got to take care of before I put my faith and trust in God. i got to fix some things in my life. And I want to go, what? Yeah, you know, I need to quit smoking, or I need to quit drinking, or I need to do this, and then I'll come to Jesus. And it's like, you're missing it. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time. You can't fix yourself. Only God can. And when you bring to God all the broken pieces, He gives you that new life. Believe right here and right now. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says this, as Paul would write to the church at Corinth. At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. When is the day you should accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Today. Why? Guess what? You have no guarantee for tomorrow. When is the opportune time? The opportune time is when the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of your heart and tugs. And you respond to that. When is the opportune time to follow the Lord and, and obey Him in whatever He's calling you to do? When you have that impression of the Holy Spirit when He moves. Do not put it off. Because if you do that, you carterize your heart against the work of God. Be sensitive. And Jesus explains to them a little bit more. He says, the world can't hate you. Why? Because you're just like the world. But they're going to hate me because I'm different from the world. When you become a Christ follower, the world is going to hate you. Why? Because you're no longer of the world. You've been born again. You're different. You've been born out of the world. And, and, and you're not one of the world. And the world hated Jesus because he was not of the world, especially for the fact that Jesus revealed the evil deeds. Why do people have such a hard time with Christians? True Christians. True Christ-like Christ followers. Why? Because a true Christ follower will live a life in such a way that they reflect holiness, which reveals the evil in people's lives. So when you are living a right life in God's righteousness, your life will be a mirror that reflects the evil in the other people's lives. And they don't like that. They don't like to see that, that greed or narcissism in their own life. When you live sacrificially as unto the Lord. That's why they hated Jesus. So he says to them, you go up, go to the festival. My time has not yet come. The Jews were looking to destroy him. Brothers, you head on down there. Now it's interesting. When Jesus says, go up, you go up. I'm not going to go up to this feast because my time has not yet come. But yet we read that he goes up secretly. Why? Was Jesus lying? Did he tell him a lie? No. I'm not going up with you. He told him just enough to get him going. He didn't lie. He said, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not going up with you. But he didn't say with you. Because he wanted to go secretly. His intention to go was to not be part of the target. If he went with his brothers and the family, and keep in mind, in the pilgrimage, when they would go in pilgrimage, they would travel in great packs. And they were looking for Jesus to arrive with the group that would arrive from Galilee. And Jesus went by himself. Because he still had work to do, but he didn't want to draw attention from the Jews that want to kill him or attempt to stone him. In fact, in John eight fifty nine, when they reject him, 
says they pick up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why? Because he was preaching the truth. He was absolute about following the Father's plan. And he would go up to the feast, but he would go up under his own terms. And I love the fact that that's what Jesus does. Jesus operated in ministry based on his own terms and according to the Father's plan, not based on what other people thought he should do. Or his brother's. And so he would, he would clearly state that he's committed to follow the Father's plan. In fact, he says in John 5:19, Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So he goes up. This is his third trip down to Judea. He intends on teaching, but he's not going in with the big show. Now picture this, whole town full of people. And they're running around, where is Jesus? Well, he's been here twice before. We've heard about what's going on in Galilee, but don't say anything because we don't want the Jews mad, but we really want to see who Jesus is. We want to hear about And you see this underlying rumbling that is going on in the city. The brothers and the family come from Galilee and Jesus isn't with them. And they start having conversations. Well, is he really the Messiah? I don't know. Maybe he is. Maybe he isn't. Maybe he's a good man. No, he's not a good man. He's leading people astray. And there's this tension and there's this debate that's going on in the city about who Jesus is. Some people are trying to discredit him. Those that, according to the Mishnah, see him as a false prophet and they want to stone him. In fact, it was written in the Talmud... Of a, it, with the Talmud of the Sanhedrin, a historical document that was written after Jesus, where it says, quote, that Jesus used sorcery to lead people away. Even in, in historical documents, they tried to discredit Jesus. It's amazing. Would you go down to Judea to save those people? Would you go into that, that den of vipers? Jesus did. Why? To share the truth. And it was according to God's plan. Ministry is never easy. Jesus was confident of the will of his Father. He knew the will of his Father and he followed through. And he didn't stop following the Father's plan because of adversity. Neither should we. Whatever God has called you to do, do. Without doubting. With boldness. Not because other people are telling you to do it, but because God's telling you to do it. And follow God's plan. Follow God's plan in the face of sarcasm, in the face of doubt, and in the face of animosity. Follow God's plan. This plan that He set for you before the foundations of the world. For the good works for you to do, as Paul would say. Well, the second part of this, verses 7 to 36... He's now in this city. And people are starting to doubt this, this ministry that is going on. People were doubting who Jesus is. Is He really from God? Is He not from God? It, it, who is this Jesus that is there and, and all of this going on? Verses 14, He says this, And now, it was in the midst of the feast, and Jesus went up to the temple began to teach. And the Jews that were astonished, saying, How has this man become so learned, having never been educated? Hear the doubt? 
And Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not of mine, but he who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, being the Father's, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether to speak of myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no one no unrighteousness in him. Didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you carry out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered and said, You've got a demon. Who seeks to kill you? And Jesus answered him and said, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. And if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, then you're angry at me because... I made an entire man well on the Sabbath. Do not judge according to the appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, we look at this, and, and so Jesus shows up in, this, in the temple, and he starts teaching. Now, keep in mind, large area. If you've been to Israel with us, you can picture the whole platform on the Temple Mount, full of people. Jesus is teaching in one of the corners, as were many of the other rabbis that are there. But Jesus is unique because he's drawing a crowd and he has enemies. It was an open-air kind of teaching and they were, they were astonished. And they're listening to him and they say, well, how does this man, this carpenter from Nazareth, speak so well because he's uneducated? How do you speak well? Do you need a cemetery, oh, I'm sorry, seminary degree to speak well? No. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need, you need the Word of God to be able to speak well. The words of God. Notice Jesus said in verse 16, The teachings are not mine, but Him who sent me. Many of you are scared to open your mouth to share the gospel. Stop being scared. Let the Holy Spirit speak through you. With boldness, because you're not speaking your words, you're speaking God's words. And let the words of God flow through you, as Jesus said. And so within this, Jesus didn't fit the Jewish leader's religious mold. He didn't have the right pedigree or degree. He's the Son of God. But they were astonished. We were talking this morning at Men's Bible study, and, and I found out something I didn't realize, that Charles Spurgeon... When he was started preaching in, in London, he was only 19 years old. And he was filling the tabernacle that seated 2,000 people three times. How does a 19-year-old speak like that and draw people together? Say, well, he's charismatic. Well, charismatic from the sense of being filled with the Spirit. And God was doing amazing things. If you learned more about Charles Spurgeon, you also know that after every sermon that he preached, he was very depressed because he thought he screwed it up. And God used him mightily within that. The source of Jesus' teachings was a father. The father that would speak through him and they were united together and it was divine truth of God. And they thought, well, no one teaches like that. Well, yeah, they do if they're of God. And, and notice what Jesus says. He says, you can do this if anyone is willing 
to do his will. And so that's a third class condition is potential. If you're willing to do the will of God, and then you will be able to teach like that. Whether you it says, look, I'm not speaking of myself. And I'm not speaking for my own glory in verse 18. Because the one who's seeking his own glory is not from the one who sent him. But the one who's seeking the one from above is seeking the will from above. You know what is so cool? Is this. When you speak and God uses you, you sit back and you're in awe. You're just blown away. And you don't take credit for anything that God is doing. Because it is all God's. And all glory and honor resides in Him. Jesus was not defend, not doing ministry out of His own motives. In fact, He challenges them with the example of Moses. Notice what He says in verse 19. Didn't Moses give you the law, and none of you carry out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? What was one of the commandments about murder? Right? Isn't, isn't like you shall not kill in the law? Yet they're seeking to kill him. They're violating their own law. And then they had the law of the Sabbath. Yet Moses says, they say, well, Moses gave a circumcision. Well, actually he didn't. Abraham did. It didn't come from Moses. But there was a caveat because circumcision was always to be on the eighth day. After birth. Once a male was born, eight days after birth, they were to be circumcised. What happens if your eighth day falls on the Sabbath? What do you do? If circumcision is work, and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, yet the law says that you have to circumcise on the Sabbath, what do the priests do? They circumcise on the Sabbath. Why? Because the hierarchy of the law, the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision, circumvented the lower law of work. Jesus says the rabbi has the ability to do the higher job or the higher work, the higher valued action, even if it is in conflict with another law. Do you follow? So Jesus says, you want to kill me because I raised a man who was crippled by the pool of Siloam, who was crippled and I healed him on a Sabbath day? Hmm. What does Jesus do? He makes himself equal with a rabbi who is doing the greater work which supersedes the law of the Sabbath. The same way all the rabbis would do on the circumcision. Brilliant truth. Because people are always more important than religion. And Jesus wanted to prove the value of human people. He says, I did one deed and you marveled. I healed this man on the Sabbath and you want to kill me. This law that you say is greatly valued, there is one that is greater and that's the value of people. What is God's will? What is the highest law? The highest value to God? It's the salvation of man. It is the salvation of man. It is human life. We get into these debates about somebody's right. 
And it's my right over the value of another life. I can tell you this, the value of life of the unborn child that is conceived is more valuable to God than the value of a person's opinion about what they should or should not do. It's the higher value. And God holds that highest value is to human life. The Jews were judged based off of human wisdom, not righteous judgment. And Jesus challenges them and said, you are not judging based off of righteous judgment within that. And in our world today, we have huge debates about such things. We are created in the image of God, Imago Dei. And the value of life supersedes everything. That's why Jesus came and died, was to give you life within this. Now, the people, they were confused about Jesus' response. Notice in verses 25 to 31, it says, So some of the Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they were seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they do nothing. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but wherever the Christ may come, no one's going to know where he's from. And then Jesus cried out in the temple teaching and saying, You both know me, and you know where I'm from, and I have not come of myself, but of him who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am ego me from him, and he sent me. And so they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid hands on him, because, note, his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform, or will, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which the man he is. And so he goes on, and, and Jesus creates this debate, and the crowd, they're doubting Jesus. They were surprised by his comments, and they were even more surprised that no one's arresting him. They're like, isn't this the guy that they're supposed to kill? Why aren't they arresting him? Question. Why aren't the Jews arresting Jesus at this point? Because God's stopping them. Why? Because of the same statement. Whenever something is stated and restated, it's always important. The time had not yet come. There was doubt with the people. They were doubting. What were they doubting? Because they were saying, well, we know he's from Nazareth, but tradition tells us we're not going to know where the Messiah comes from. The tradition was based off of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13. We're in Daniel's vision. It says, I kept looking in the night visions. Behold, the clouds of heaven... One like the Son of Man was coming, and he came of the ancient days and was presented before him. They were looking for the Messiah to come out of the sky. They didn't know where he was coming from. They said, he can't be the Messiah. He was born of Nazareth. Hmm. Was he? Was Jesus born in Nazareth? Where was he born? Bethlehem. And being born in Bethlehem would make him of the lineage of who? David which fulfills the messianic prophecy. But they didn't like that. It didn't fit their presupposition. So they were saying, well, we know this where this guy is from, so therefore he can't be. It's interesting how we have selective thinking when we don't want to believe. 
we make those decisions. I only want to believe what I want to believe. So Jesus' statement angered these people. And they wanted to take him. They wanted to kill him. But yet his time had not yet come. He disclosed himself as God. He said, if you heard me read, Ego of me. That's the name of God. Which would enrage the people, especially the priests at this time. They wanted to seize him. But God said, no, not today. But notice what ends up happening in verse 31. Whenever the truth is proclaimed, people believe. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, will he not perform more signs than those which this man has done? In other words, when the Christ, how, how can this guy not be the Messiah? Because who, who's going to do more miracles than he's done? And they were amazed within that. And so people were believing. In every context of evangelism, there are going to be people that believe and people that reject. Jesus' brothers were rejecting the plan. They were rejecting who he was, and they had great doubt. In the context of the Temple Mount, where the preaching is going on, there were people that believed and people that doubted. As you share the gospel, you're going to come across people that believe and then people that doubt. Should you take offense to that? No. Nope. Just keep teaching. Keep sharing. And there's this tension of faith. The people wanted more miracles. He goes on and he says, And then the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. Chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. So therefore, Jesus said, For a little while longer I'm with you, and then I go to him who sent me. You'll seek me, and you'll not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is the statement that he said, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come? Can a unbeliever understand spiritual things? No. Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms about the father and the father relationship. And the religious leaders heard everybody muttering about this. And he declared the fact that he is going to return to heaven soon. And they're like, we don't get this. Where is he going to go? Is he going to go to some Hellenistic culture? He's going to leave Jerusalem. He's going to go to Syria. He's going to go to Asia Minor. Maybe he's going to go to Macedonia, where the, where the Jews are living outside of that. And then we're not going to follow him? It's interesting to me that these religious leaders had no clue what Jesus was saying. Yet, in the law, it declares it. They should have known. Deuteronomy chapter 429 says this. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. Note, if you search for him with all your heart and your soul. You want to find God? He's to be found. But you've got to search with him with all your heart. Why did the Pharisees not see Jesus? Because their heart wasn't seeking after the Messiah. Why did Jews miss the Messiah? Because they weren't ready to see Him. They didn't want to see Him. He didn't fit their criteria. They doubted. They doubted. Why did somebody not come to faith? Because they doubt. 
But the promise is if you seek God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, you'll find Him. Because you open yourself up. Jeremiah 29, 12-13 says, Then you will call upon Me and come and pray to Me, and I will listen. Note, you will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. Have you ever heard God speak? Some of you may say, no. God speaks. God speaks to those that are listening with their whole heart. Heart. Without doubt. These leaders considered it unthinkable that Jesus was the Messiah, nor would he ever fulfill the role. So they would never believe. And, and holding that position, you'll never come to faith. So what ended up happening? Well, this doubting would put these people on sides. Notice, it says, now in the last day, that great day of the feast. Remember, the feast day the feast was seven days. So this is the seventh today. Now on that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers, or literally torrents, of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom, he believed, whom those believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? And he has not the Scripture, has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem in the village where David was? And so a division occurred amongst the crowd because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to him, Why didn't you bring him? And the officers answered, quote, Never a man has spoken the way that this man speaks. And the Pharisees then answered and said to him, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But the crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Note, Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? And the answer is, You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Jesus came and he spoke in the temple area, and for seven days he was presenting the, the truth, and now at the end of the seventh day he declares the truth and the promise of the Holy Spirit caused division. I love the fact that Jesus uses what is in front of them. On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, it's called the Great Day. On this day, this, they would have seven days, along with the torches, they would go down. And if you remember, when we went down to Israel, we would go down to the city of David, down to the Pool of Siloam. And then they would march with water from this pool all the way up to the top of the Temple Mount. They would do that every day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, the fire, 
Remember the water that God would provide in the wilderness, right? As as for the for the nation, so it was in celebration. But on the great day, there would be seven trips. On that day, as they make these seven trips, Jesus is standing up. Now imagine this processional as they're bringing this up. They bring the processional of water up to the top, and Jesus is at the top and says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. When Moses struck the rock, what came out of the rock? Torrents of living water. It provided life. You see what Jesus is doing? He uses the same things that God used in the, in the wilderness. And the wilderness was a picture of Jesus. And he declares himself as the living water to all of these people that were there. This great day. It was called the day of Hosannas. Leviticus 23:36. For seven days you'll present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you'll have a holy convocation present offering to fire to the Lord. It's an assembly and you won't do labor. It was a huge, bold action. If anyone comes to me, that's a third class condition, which means it's potential. If anyone comes, everyone's welcome. But if you come, this is the potential that will happen. Now remember, John is writing post-resurrection. John is writing from the city of Ephesus, which we've been to, this gospel And he is looking back at when the Holy Spirit would potentially be coming to the people. And he includes this into this gospel message. It's an invitation, much like the woman of Samaria in John 4.10, where Jesus answered her about the conversational water. He says, if you knew the gift of God who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you the living water. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I give shall never thirst, but the water I give him will come up as a well of water springing to eternal life. A reference to Isaiah 55, 1, where he says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine, milk, without money, without cost. Come to the waters within this. Paul to the church of Corinth would write this. And all that drank the same spiritual drink, for they were all drinking from a spiritual rock, which followed them, the rock was Christ. You see the thread all the way through Scripture, where Jesus stands up on the seventh day of the festival and says, I'm the living water. Come to me. Drink. And the promise of the Holy Spirit will be given to you. And you will be filled Many people live empty lives today. Why? Because they are not filled with the Spirit of God. It's interesting. Because when you take a look at what Paul writes, he says, and be filled with the Spirit. But the tense is is a, a present participle, which literally reads, be being filled. It's the continuous action of be being filled by the Spirit. And then we speak to each other psalms and, and, and hymns and spiritual songs. So we look at this. And God gives to this this blessing. Isaiah 44, 3, which the Pharisees would have heard and listened. He says this, 
from Isaiah, I will pour out water in the thirsty land and streams of dry ground, and I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and your blessings of the descendants. And Ezekiel 36.25 says, Then I sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. What is Jesus doing on the seventh day? He's giving an altar call. He's giving an altar call. He's been teaching for seven days, and now he says, come to me and I will fill you up. Isn't that so cool? Why? Because he saw how empty the land had become and how dry and parched they are. I wonder what Jesus would do today. Oh, he already has. He's given his spirit. To anyone who calls out, he will fill you with his spirit. A spirit that walks with us. John fourteen sixteen to 17 says, I will ask my Father, He'll give you another helper, paraclete, that He may be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides where? Within you. I hear many people say, well, Jesus is in your heart. Yeah, no. The reality is the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. Jesus is on the, on the right hand of the Father making intercession for you. The Holy Spirit is who is dwelling in you. God is indivisible. So if you want to say Jesus is in your heart, you're technically correct. But if you want to be 100% accurate, you're filled with the Spirit. Who is the paraclete? The word paraclete means one who comes alongside. To encourage you. But the but Jesus gave the invitation and the people were divided. Notice their response. Some said he's nuts. Some said he's a prophet. Some said he can't be the Christ because we know where he came from, from Galilee. Some wanted to kill him, verse 44. Then the officers and the chief priests and the Pharisees came to the, they came to the chief priests and they said, why didn't you bring him here? And notice what the officers said. We've never heard anybody speak like this. And Jesus was not arrested. Why? Because his time had not yet come within that. We know that they wanted to seek to destroy him, but the religious leaders were deaf. And then, what else is interesting is this, as John finishes this narrative with this, they said, well, everybody is following after him. But then they make this statement, verse 48, no one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed him, has he? Oh, yeah, they have. Nicodemus had. Joseph of Arimathea has. Have you ever met somebody that wanted to deny the truth so much they use words or they want to create a situation? They say, well, everybody's doing this. Everybody thinks this. Everybody is saying this about you. And the fact is, not everybody is doing that to try to strengthen their case. The temple guard didn't arrest him. The religious leaders were frustrated by him. Nicodemus was declaring truth about him, saying our law doesn't judge a man without him giving that opportunity. I often think about this statement where Nicodemus steps in in verse 51. It's a pretty bold statement. But I think what Nicodemus was really doing was he was trying to give Jesus the opportunity to witness to the rest of the Pharisees publicly. 
He already knew the truth. And he said, we don't try a person unless they have opportunity to speak. So let's let him speak. <laughs> Good job, Nicodemus. We look at that. and Why? Because for Nicodemus, while he was a secret disciple, there was no doubt. They said, there are no Galilean prophets. That's a lie. Jonah was a prophet from Galilee. Hosea was a prophet from Galilee. Nahum was a prophet from Galilee. But they wanted to declare this untruth. In the end, there's going to be doubt in a lot of people's minds. Doubt will keep you from coming to this place of following after Jesus. Doubt will rob you of salvation. Because if you doubt Jesus, if you doubt what Jesus did at the cross, there is no way to be saved. But all come to salvation, they only, only come through Jesus. If you doubt Jesus, you'll end up on the losing side. So what should you do? Here's what you do. Separate yourself from the doubters and follow Him. Let me pray. God, I thank You that we can come to this place. We can see the struggles that You had, Lord Jesus, the, the difficulties that, that You had in, in just sharing truth. Lord Jesus, if you had that much of a hard time, I can't imagine, well, I can't imagine because we experience it, how difficult it is for us in this world today. Yet, the truth is the truth. May we share with boldness. May we come to that place where we are centered in all aspects. And when the world is going sideways and the skeptics are screaming loudly, May we look inwardly to you, Holy Spirit. To our innermost being, to our soul. And find peace and hope and comfort. Lord, may we be centered on the truth of your word, the power of your spirit, and the hope of salvation, which is only through Jesus. And worship you. As we close with this song, let's make it a prayer unto the Lord. Grand earth has quaked before Moved by the sound of His voice Seas that are shaken and stirred broken for my regard. Through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you. Through it all, through it all, it is well. Through it Of me, 
We can be at peace because we are in your peace. There is nothing outside of your purview. There is nothing outside of your control. When doubt and fear come raging around us, may we look unto you, Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. May we not be moved by the things of this world. They didn't move you. You fulfilled your duty, your your role. May we finish well also. I thank you for the peace of God that passes all understanding. May it guard our hearts and minds as we go out into this world. Speak the truth in love. And see people come to faith. And most importantly, God, make everything that we say and do make you smile. We thank you for our time tonight in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and praise Jesus. Have a blessed week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. 
Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.